Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a really familiar passage in the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And I'm pretty sure it's page 848 or 849 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I encourage you to turn there with me. Again, page 848, 849. All right. This passage actually gets to probably the most important issue that we could ever face in our lives, which is ultimately this. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Okay? How are we saved? How are we reconciled to God? And it gives us an answer. The answer that it gives is that you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and that you must love your neighbor as yourself. So to enter the kingdom of God, you must love God and your neighbor. The key moral requirement, the key response that we are given in this text is that we must love. We must love. Now that sounds easy, right? I mean, piece of cake, no problem. Loving is easy, right? All I, all I have to do is tell God and tell others that I love them and I'm okay, right? Or maybe I just have to stir up some kind of emotions or affections every now and again just to let them know that I love them. Occasionally I have to do some things for them to kind of show them that I'm not just saying things. I really mean it. Look, here I'm doing some stuff. I definitely love you, right? And then the kingdom is mine. That seems easy, right? Anybody can do that, right? Well, if we love the way the world loves, then yes, it's easy. Absolutely. If we, if what we're doing, being called to love here is, is loving the way that we love pizza or the way we love football or the way we love sleep or the way we love dogs, then we're okay. You know, if that's the way that it's talking, then fine. And I did say dogs intentionally, Rachel. She's not in here. Too bad. <clears throat> if loving means that I, I have to love God and others the way I love my family, even though I can't get along with them, or the way that I love my last 15 girlfriends, then, then sure, love is easy. But if we're called to love in a different way, then love is hard. If we're called to love in a biblical way, it's challenging. You see, love... Worldly love is easy. Loving the things of the world is easy. Loving the self and our affections for those things that we think will gratify our personal desires, all of that is easy. But biblical love is not easy. Biblical love is hard. It's the hardest thing that we could ever do. Biblical love demands everything. And guess what? It guarantees no earthly gratification. Biblical love says, lay your life down. And you might ask, well, what do I get? And the answer is, you get Christ. Now lay down your life. And let's, let's, let's just be real honest right up front. That's not always very comforting, is it? It doesn't always make us feel really good to know, like, okay, I'm laying down my life, I'm sacrificing my entire life, and I get Christ. Yay. Right? And the reason for that is because we love ourselves. We love seeking to satisfy ourselves, and we don't want to wait for it. We don't want to hope for it. We don't want to work at something and then not necessarily see the results. And when we do work for something, we want to see our actions immediately bear fruit right here and right now. And so what we end up doing with love is we treat it as a commodity to be bartered and traded for. See, I'll love you if I can feel your love for me. And if I'm content with that love for me, I'll sacrifice for you if you first sacrifice yourself 
for me. I'll do for you. I'll, I'll, I'll give of myself to you if, if I feel like I'm getting paid out for this. If it is worth my time. If it is worth my energy. If you give me basically what I want. And the true underlying love behind all of that is a love for self. We love ourselves. The reason why biblical love is so hard is because we are saturated with this love of self. We automatically and almost robotically operate out of this love of self. It is pervasive. It is entrenched. And we will treat love as a commodity in order to gain from it. We use it. We trade it like it's money. But that kind of self-love actually prevents us from loving God and others. It's not enough. It's not ultimately enough to satisfy you. And it's certainly not enough to satisfy God. You see, to enter the kingdom of God, we must embrace God's definition of love. And that's what we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. So again, that's page 848, 849, something like that in the chairs, Bibles in the chairs. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. In this passage, we learn four truths about the nature of true biblical love. And the first one is this, that love is never separated from truth. Okay, we like to think that love is this emotional impulse that drives us, that just compels us to act. Right, And because it is so emotionally driven, because it is so supercharged, it actually, we see it as superseding truth. As the ultimate authority, when you are in love, that compels you to do things that are illogical, that make no sense, that go against the grain, and actually serves as the ultimate authority in your life. But that's not the way that God presents it. A bit of context here. Remember that this exchange between Jesus and this scribe takes place only a few days before Jesus' arrest, his beating, and his crucifixion. Just a few days before Jesus is going to hang on a cross, this encounter takes place. And we saw that from the moment that Jesus entered Jerusalem, during that last week of his life, he was persistently pelted with questions from these religious leaders, these Pharisees and these Sadducees. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to deceive him. They were trying to get him to deny some essential truth about the law so that they could prove him to be a fraud, or better yet that they could get him to incriminate himself before the Romans and get himself killed. 
But each time they tried to go and resist and reject his authority, they ended up looking like fools. Verse 28 tells us that Jesus is approached by a scribe who had overheard a debate that he was having with the Sadducees. That debate takes place in verses 18 through 27, and we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Now, this man is probably not a Sadducee. He's probably a Pharisee. Okay? And we can discern this because every time Mark mentions the scribes so far in his gospel, he always associates them with Pharisees. Okay? A second indication, a second clue for us is there in verse 28 that he looks approvingly upon Jesus' um, conversation with these Sadducees. Remember, the Sadducees denied the resurrection. Pharisees agreed with the resurrection. Jesus says there is a resurrection. Therefore, he seems to be on the side of the Pharisees, right? And then the third indication is there in verse 33, where the scribe alludes to at least three non-Pentateuch Old Testament passages in his reply to Jesus. He says, love God and neighbor. The loving God and neighbor is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now this is an allusion to 1 Samuel 15, Hosea 6, Micah 6, all of which the Sadducees rejected. So this guy is probably a Pharisee. What that means for us, we have to know that at this point in time, this guy is on the wrong side. Okay? Sometimes we get lost in the fact that he's coming and he's asking Jesus a question, and we don't think about where he's coming from. Okay? Right now, he is aligned with the Pharisees. He's on the team that would end up arresting Jesus and having him killed at the hands of the Romans. Okay? But unlike all those other guys... Right? Unlike those religious leaders that we've seen so far, these men who hold to a form of the truth but really try to twist it and distort it for their own personal gain, this man, who remember, his job is to know the law inside and out. He teaches on it, he instructs on it, he judges on it, he's a lawyer. It's his job to know the law. He comes to Jesus with an earnest question. He wants to know the truth. And seeing that Jesus had answered these religious leaders well, that his authoritative statements were consistent with the scripture, that this man had spent his entire life studying and poring over and was responsible to know, he comes to Jesus seeking authoritative truth. Now, do you guys catch the weight of that? I mean, you catch how big this is? All right? This is kind of like a Supreme Court justice going to a carpenter and asking his opinion on the law, on the Constitution. That's, that's, that's the illustration that we have today, right? A scribe has to know the law. He has to know the commandments, which one is most important. And he goes to this no-name nobody from Galilee, this former carpenter who's, yeah, doing all, like teaching is unbelievable and he's doing all these signs, but still, he's a carpenter. That's huge. He openly and sincerely came to Jesus seeking to know the truth. And he asked the question, which commandment's most important? What's the most important commandment of all? He's asking what is most central, what is most fundamental for God's people. You see, there were over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. 600. And it was not an uncommon debate among religious leaders as to try to pick out which ones are most important. Well, this one is better than this one, this one is better than this one, this one is better than this one. Kind of trying to narrow it down to say, okay, which commandment really 
identifies, it kind of encapsulates all of it. What are we looking at? What is most crucial? What is most fundamental? What is the premise of the law on which all the commands depend? What commandment supersedes everything else and is necessary, not just for the Israelites, but actually for all humanity, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike? What is required for us to know and obey? He's asking Jesus, who taught with authority, not like the scribes, right? We saw that in chapter 1. What is the most basic, foundational, ultimate, elementary truth that we are to live by? And Jesus answers this. You were made to love God, and you were made to love others. The deepest, primary, supreme purpose of your life is to love God and your neighbor. Now, I can kind of get a picture of this interaction between Jesus and this scribe. I can kind of see him kind of going over scroll after scroll of the law in his mind, just kind of checking the references. What about this one? What about this one? What about this one? What about this one over here? And then the light just kind of dawns on him. And he recognizes and affirms there in verses 32 and 33. He says, you are right, teacher. You are right. He said, you have truly said, get that, truly said, that he is one and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, this scribe, this master of the commands of the law, who taught and instructed and judged based upon God's commands, says to Jesus, truly, you are right. Your words are truth. I mean, just think about that. Sit in that for a minute. This guy who knows God's law better than anybody affirms the teaching of Jesus. You know, for the most part, we like commands. Do you know that? We really do. And we might not like to obey them, but we like them. We like knowing I have an option either to do this or to do this, to accept or to reject, right? Because it gives me this illusion that I'm still the authority. I can still pick or choose if I'm willing to obey the speed limit or I'm willing to heed this law or that one over there or whatever. I'm the authority here. And because that's the case, we'll gravitate towards religion. We'll gravitate towards this idea that if I go and I perform these rituals and I obey these commands, then I am doing right. That I'm the authority over my life and I am leading my life to my own salvation. Right? I'm saving myself by what I'm doing, by obeying the law. And we think that in religion we can choose to obey rules or reject rules just so long as I am captain of my own destiny and commander of my own soul, then I am cool with commands. We are. But you know, truth is a different matter. Where you can look at commands and you can say, yeah, I'm going to take that or leave that. Truth is completely different. Truth is not optional. Truth tells me that I am not in charge. That I am not the authority here. If there is truth, then it is absolute and it is over me. And whether I like it or not, 
it is there. And because that truth is there and it is authoritative over my life, then that means that I am responsible to it. And if I fail to heed it, then there is consequences. Right? That is the deal with truth. That's what's up. And so how can we, we could try all that we want to reestablish our own perception of authority, right? And basically say that truth is relative. That's the way that our culture wants to go and say, no, 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 no absolute truth. Truth is relative. But the funny thing is that you about that is that you always make an absolute statement about the relativity of truth. Are you absolutely sure that truth is relative? Absolutely sure that truth is relative. Okay, then who's the authority there? Because if you just said it, then there's who it is. You think that you are the authority. But no, we're all under God. God is the God of truth, and therefore it is absolute, and we are culpable to it. The truth is, you are subject to it. You are not the authority. And as a consequence, whether you like it or not, we are divided into two camps on the issue of truth. Either you love and you subject yourself to the truth, or you hate it, you reject it, and try to live as if you are your own authority and come up with your own truth. Everybody fits into one of two categories. There is no middle ground. These religious leaders who were debating with Jesus, you know, they were fine with commands because, hey, they've got all these traditions. They can add to these traditions. They are the authorities here, right? That's why they're questioning Jesus on the nature of authority. By whose authority are you doing these things? Because we didn't okay you, right? They were setting themselves up as the authority. If I, and they thought that if I just do this and I do this and I do this and I do this, then God is still pleased with me. But ultimately, even in that, you're still living for yourself and your desire is to please yourself. And so often we treat worship this way, as if God will be pleased with me in my obedience to rituals, as, you know, even though our hearts are still far from Him. As if we're loving God because we sing songs or we, we listen to preaching or we take the Lord's Supper. As if that's what causes us to love God and God is somehow pleased with that. You know, we can do all of those things and still hate the truth. And if we still hate the truth, we hate the God of truth. This scribe is different, though. This man realized that the truth Jesus was demanding took far more than just choosing to obey commands for purity or for sacrifice or for offering, that it actually required all. Jesus' summary here of God's demands for your entire life is absolutely correct. Jesus is right. Truly, he has said. And so love is never separated from this truth. Your feelings of love are not the absolute authority. Love is not some fleeting emotion. Love is not some general cognitive appreciation for God, both of which you can still do in in order to feed your love for yourself. All of your labors of love, all your affections, all your affinities, all your efforts are to run through this truth, by this truth, and for this truth, that you were made to love God and others, and as a consequence, not yourself. 
It's not about religious observance or the external obedience to the rules. It's not about your feelings. You can do all of that and still hate God and others. You can seek religion or doctrine or emotional experiences in order to love yourself. But love is not about you. It's about God and others. And so that's the first truth that we see from this passage, right? Love is never separated from truth. But we need to unpack it a little bit further, right? Love is never separated from truth. But second, love is to be first directed to God. Now, Jesus' first response to the scribe's question is this. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The reality is you can't truly love anybody unless you first love God. The one true and living God who created us to have a relationship with Him. Not because God needed us. Not because God was lonely or God needed love and you're here to fill the void. But God created you so that your fullest expression of joy, so that your fullest expression of love, so that your fullest expression of the soul's satisfaction would be found in Him. That's why you were created. You are created to have a relationship with Him. And to have a relationship with Him, you must know Him. And to know Him, you must love Him. And to love Him, you must ascribe worth to Him. That is worship. And to worship Him, you must proclaim the glory of His name. Jesus is doing more than simply quoting from the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 like some good Jewish boy. Okay? He is actually calling us back, just like God was in Deuteronomy 6, to our original purpose. We are to trust in the one true and living God and to love Him with our whole being. Not just with our lips, right? Not just when we happen to have an emotional experience. Not when we just happen to have a right thought about God. Not just when we happen to feel like doing a good deed. But with all of us. We are to love God with our whole being. Everything about us is to glorify God. We are to worship God with our affections. We are to worship God with our intellect. We are to worship God with our wills, being fully obedient to Him to the point at which even the entirety of our strength is expended upon Him. And that doesn't just happen. This is why we were created. For His glory. Isaiah 43 verse 7 says, You were created for the glory of God. We were made to give Him glory with all of our lives. Not just with parts of it, or sometimes, or when it's convenient. But all the time. Not just when we are seen by others, but with all our being. That is what it means to love God. And though we were created that way, it didn't take mankind very long to rebel, did it? Had a whole whopping three chapters and they're already doing it, right? We exchanged the truth about God for lie and then chose instead to worship and serve the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
sometimes worshiping images from nature, sometimes false gods that we created. Ultimately, we long to worship and serve a God that we can control. That's what we want. A God that we can love, a God that we choose for ourselves, a God that is basically made in our own image. We rebelled against God and we tried to live as God because we want ultimately to love and worship ourselves. And so God gave us over to our own rebellion to continue in our sin as enemies under the just wrath of God, worshiping ourselves rather than the one to whom all glory belongs. This is what we do when we worship false gods. This is what we do when we worship our stomachs or our entertainment, or our sense of success, or desiring to fulfill ourselves with achievements, or relationships, or material possessions, or safety and security, or comfort, or peace, or you name it. This is what we're doing when we try to worship no God at all. But here's ultimately what's going to catch all of us. If you're sitting here, this is probably going to catch you and get you right in the face. We want to worship a form of the one true and living God rather than the one true and living God. What we'll do is we'll take enough of Scripture to create a religion that ends up exalting ourselves for our piety, for the things that we do, for the way that we pray, for our acts of worship, for our works, for the things that we say, or for our experiences or spiritual gifts. When all the while our hearts are a million miles away from Him. You know, one of my biggest fears in this position that I'm in is that I stand up here and I could potentially make a name of myself or gain respect from people because I preach. And if I'm not careful, I could let my preaching be my self-justification. And in this process... I can get up here and I can extol you to love God with all your hearts and my own heart be a million miles away from Him. That's a woeful feeling. So pray for me, please. This is what these religious leaders of the day were doing. They were outwardly trying to keep the law, but in a way that brought them glory or made them feel good about themselves for what they had done. This is a God that they can control, right? A God that they can worship, a God that rewarded their self-love. And even though it's so close to the truth, they did not worship the one true God in a way that was pleasing to Him because they didn't love Him with all their hearts. And you know, we do the same thing. We gather, we sing songs. You, know, you can be in church every time it meets. You can be baptized. You can take the Lord's Supper. You can do all of this stuff on the outside, listening to preaching. You can give tithes and offerings. You can outwardly submit to the laws. You can put on this facade. And you can even stir up all sorts of emotions and have all of these experiences and never love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love is far more than emotion. Worship is far more than than religious activities. 
says that true worship is better than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. It cannot be expressed in mere obedience to commands. It actually requires our whole being. That all these activities actually mean nothing without a true love for God. And so the question is, are your affections set on God? Or are you trying to use God, to manipulate God, to just appease God in order to get what you want from Him? It's a question we all have to ask. So love is never separated from the truth. And the truth tells us that love must first be directed to God. But Jesus says that there's even more. Third, love by nature overflows to others without partiality. All right, if we are truly to love God, it will come, it will just be a natural overflow. If we really, really love God with all our being, it will overflow in a love for others without discretion. Because God loves them without discretion. So Jesus answers the scribe's question. It doesn't just end with love the Lord your God and just, okay, good, let's go home. He adds a second. But it's not just adding a second for good measure, like to, as if to say, here, you wanted one, I'll give you two. Right? This is really one complete thought. These two Old Testament passages that Jesus quotes, Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19, 18, complete one thought that is the answer to this man's question. One idea. Though priority is given to the first, it is inseparable from the second. The reality is you can't love God with all your being without loving your neighbor. And you cannot love anyone else on this planet fully the way that God would intend you to without loving the Lord your God with all your being. They are completely inseparable. They go hand in hand. You cannot split them or divide them in two. This is why Jesus answers the man in verse 31 who though he has quoted two Old Testament imperatives with this. There is no other commandment singular greater than these. There is no one single greater commandment than these combined. These two ideas complete the one greatest thought about God. Okay, But Matthew even adds in his account of this conversation, on these two commands depends all the law and the prophets. So he's saying, you can summarize the entire Old Testament with these two things. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do those things, you have fulfilled the entire Old Testament. Alright? And so, if you're thinking, I can love God in isolation, right? that my love for God is somehow distinct and separable from my love for other people. And I can choose not to love other people and still be fully devoted and loving God, then you're wrong. Love happens in community. You do not live in a bubble. Okay, so you can't say that you love God all the while hating your neighbor. You can't do it. Our love for God naturally overflows in love for others. You know, in Luke's account of this passage, he records a second question that the scribe asked. After hearing Jesus' first response, the scribe turns around and he says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember? Right? And what he basically does in that is says, I know that Leviticus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and that's directed towards your brother Israelites, right? Just dealing with the people of Israel, the Jews of the day. 
I'm blowing that up. It's anybody. It's everybody. Everybody is your neighbor. Right? It doesn't matter who it is. You pass them on the street. You go across the world to see them. Those are your neighbors. And then Jesus actually turns the question around. It's not about who is my neighbor. It's really about how can I be a good neighbor to others. And that requires intentionality. You don't just happen to be a good neighbor to others. You have to intentionally strive to be good neighbors to others. How many of you have neighbors? Okay. Does anybody just kind of naturally love your neighbor? Like, you know, you're, you're basically walking from, like our garage is separated from our house by about 10 feet, you know. And so we have to walk from our garage to our house. Like, if I go back and forth between there, I am not just naturally loving my neighbor because I walk down my sidewalk. Right? If I'm going to love Larry or I'm going to love Scott, it's because I intentionally engage with them. Right? So me being a good neighbor doesn't just happen. And I can't say that I am just because I, I just happen to go through my day. It requires intentionality. It requires purposefulness. It requires a deliberate action on my part to go out and love them. And I do that because it's an outflow of my love for God. Because I love God. I want to love my neighbor, even though Larry's a hard guy to love. Now, we're ready to define what true love is. Okay, biblical love is not a feeling. It does not seek its own benefit. Love, Biblical love is self-sacrificing. It seeks the good of others without expectation. And so a good definition of biblical love is this. An impartial self-sacrificing commitment to act for the glory of God and the good of others, regardless of response, reception, or reciprocity. Don't worry, I'll say it again. Okay. (laughs) Biblical love is an impartial, self-sacrificing commitment. Right? It's a determination. I am willing to do this, to sacrifice of myself, regardless of who the audience is. Okay? And I'm going to act. I'm committing to act for the glory of God and the good of others. This is not about me. It's about God and others. And we do that regardless of their response. They might never acknowledge it. They may never even see it. Regardless of reception, like they physically have received that and they're grateful for it, or reciprocity, that they turn around and give it back to you. Right? True love seeks no No response. It's not a 50-50 here. It's a 100%. You give yourself completely, entirely away, and you expect nothing in return, no strings attached. We do that without bias, without any expectation of return. The greatest description we have of biblical love in Scripture is 1 Corinthians 13, and if you've been to any Christian wedding, you've probably heard it, right? Okay, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8 says, Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And Paul actually goes on to say there in 1 Corinthians 13 that, that our worship, that our acts of faith, and that our gifts of the Spirit are meaningless without love for one another. So you see how all of this comes together. Friends, if, if we're not surrounding ourselves with people um, 
if, if we're only surrounding ourselves with people that benefit us in some way, we're not loving. Okay? I want you to think about your relationships. Think especially about this church. Right? When you come together, who do you gravitate towards? Who do you talk to? Who do you engage with? Is it just the people that are same age as you? Same life experience? They dress the same way, like the same things, same skin color, same number of kids. What is it that draws you to them? Right? Why do you gravitate towards them? And what keeps you from talking to the person that is older than you or younger than you? What's keeping you from talking to the guy that just kind of walked in on the, off, you know, from the street just kind of haphazard because he saw something was going on? Why are you not engaging with them? What's the difference? And so when you look at those two paradigms, right? If a beggar just kind of walked in here off the street versus the person that you're most comfortable with, that you know the best, and you, you gravitate towards one or the other, are, are you loving in that point? Right? Are you really seeking them? Or are you really loving yourself? Right? You know, we have a natural affinities for people. There's no, no doubt about that. But that's, that's not loving the way that Christ loved. That is showing partiality. And here's the thing. Love is not relegated to people in the same life stage as me or the same interest as me or those who flatter me or make me feel good about myself. It includes people, no matter the color, no matter the money in the bank, no matter the age, no matter the style, no matter their life ambitions, no matter their abilities or their disabilities. We are called to love them as our neighbor. Love them the way we love ourselves. Anything less than that is self-love. And let's face it, we're all guilty of it. We surround ourselves with the people that are just like us, who are easy to love. But here's the deal. Are you really loving them, or are you loving what you see of yourself in them? Here's the real challenge you need to think about with regards to your relationships, okay? Do I really love Matt, or do I love Matt only as much as I see Chet in Matt? Think about that. And you know how to tell? What happens if Matt stops doing the things that we used to do together? Like He just doesn't have time for them or interest in them anymore, right? What if... What if Matt gets something that I wanted? Right? I've been longing for this for a long time. I've been desiring this thing and and Matt got it and I didn't. What happens if if Matt turns out to not be the same as me? Like he, he doesn't have all of the things that I thought he did. And now our relationship is just kind of, well, it's it's boring. It's not really fun anymore. I don't really see it benefiting me in the same way because, you know, Matt sold his motorcycle. I can't go riding on that anymore. Not that I've ever did that, but uh, if I did, you know. Or what if, what if Matt is just like his life is hard? Something happened, and, and now it's just difficult to love Matt. It requires a lot, and it's messy, and it's hard, and there's no real payout. Do I just bail on Matt? If so... That's an indication of what I love. Right? Guys, if, you don't, if you're not developing relationships with people that are different than you, how do you know that you love them? 
the way that Christ has called you to love them. We ought to have friends that are all different ages. I I love the fact that my kids get excited about the fact when our community group comes over because our friends are coming over. Right? Friends are not just like Joshua and Jacob and Hayden and all the kids that are down the street. Our friends are everybody. Jim is our friend. Right? It doesn't matter who comes over. They're our friend. It's easy to love someone that is just like you. So, that's showing partiality, and it's not biblical love. Now, I should also add that that Jesus' connection between loving God and others is essential for us to recognize if we're going to pursue relationships, particularly romantic relationships. Okay? saying this because I'm looking at our context. We've got a lot of single folks here who desire to be married, right? The reality is you can't fully pursue a relationship with another person if you are not loving God with all your being, okay? Because if you're not finding your soul's satisfaction in God and loving Him with all that you are, guess what you're going to try to do with that other person? You're going to try to make them your savior. You're going to try to make them your soul satisfaction, and they can't do it. They will never, ever, ever be able to do it, no matter how good they are. Right? So if you're thinking about pursuing a relationship with anybody, it has to first be directed to the Lord before you can think about that other person, or you will be using them right, to fulfill some void in your life. And you'll be treating at that point love as a commodity to be bartered for so that you can get what you really want, which is the love of self. But to truly love God, we must also love our neighbor. Now guys, as I've said all this stuff, I'm hoping a big light bulb has come on. And you recognize to yourself, "I, I I can't do that. I can't love God with my whole being. I, I can't love my neighbor as myself. I don't do that. Right? We ought to all be thinking that. <laughs> In and of ourselves, we are hopeless. We love ourselves. But by ourselves, we cannot love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourselves. We simply can't do it. But within this passage, praise the Lord, there is a promise that love finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Right? This scribe, he understood the truth of the scripture that Jesus had quoted. He realized that indeed it summarized the entire Old Testament. All the laws and all the prophets in these words. The entire Old Testament were encapsulated in what Jesus has said. And he even adds his own textual support. Right? He alludes to a variety of Old Testament passages, including 1 Samuel 15.22 and Hosea 6.6 and Micah 6.6-8. He gets it. He affirmed that Jesus has spoken rightly and truly and that this authoritative words are consistent summary of all the Old Testament Scripture. That to love God with all of your being and to love your neighbor are better than whole burnt offering and sacrifices. He completely gets it. But then it says in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any questions. 
I mean, what do you mean that he's far from the kingdom of God? I mean, he gets it. He understands that Jesus has spoken rightly, that his teachings are consistent with all the scripture. This man affirms what Jesus has said. And this man understands the law, right? He's not a, a nincompoop, right? He gets it. He's a scribe. He has studied the law. He's a religious leader. He knows. And he answers wisely, right? Mark even tells us he answered wisely. And so what's missing? I mean, he gets God's meaning. And so maybe, yeah, he doesn't perfectly obey the law. He, maybe he just needs to work harder at loving God with his whole being. And he just needs to work harder at loving his neighbor as himself. He just needs to do. He just needs to be. He just needs to dooby dooby do, right? All that kind of stuff. That's not what it's about. Why is he not far from the kingdom of God and not of the kingdom of God? There's a lot riding on that preposition right there. And this statement is so shocking that it stops even Jesus' adversaries in their tracks. They didn't dare to ask him any more questions. He has just declared that they are all outside of the kingdom of God and that this man, though he affirms Jesus' teaching, still hasn't made it Far enough. In doing this, Jesus establishes himself as the authority and the judge. Jesus knows who is and who is not of the kingdom of God. And though this guy is close, he is not close enough. Now, close works in horseshoes and hand grenades, but it doesn't work with Jesus. And so, what's missing? What does this guy not get? Friends, we're in the same predicament that this guy and these folks are in. The truth is that none of us have loved God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. None of us have loved our neighbors as ourselves. We love ourselves. And we can sit here and we can affirm the teaching of Jesus. And we can hold on to partial truths and religiously seek to obey commands and perform religious rituals. Right? We can hold on to a form of the truth and still not be in the kingdom because none of us can do what the law requires and everyone is seeking their own way to satisfy their own desires for their own ends. And we're using love as a commodity to do that. They are trying to earn the kingdom of God. This scribe is trying to earn the kingdom of God and he just can't do it. Do you see that that is where you are? That you are in the same place. That you can accomplish nothing for yourself. The best that you can do is to get close, but not close enough. What's missing, what this guy doesn't get, is Jesus. He is saying that the only way for you to come far enough is to follow Christ, to follow Him, to receive Him, to come to Him. And no matter how much you affirm what Jesus says, without Jesus, without loving Him, without following Him, you cannot get there. Only Jesus lived a perfectly obedient life. You and I cannot live that life. Only Jesus did. 
Only Jesus has loved God with his whole being and his neighbor as himself. All the rest of us are still loving ourselves. And Jesus gave that life as a substitute by dying on the cross to pay the ransom, to pay the penalty, to pay what sin is owed, which is eternal separation from God. That is what our self-love is guaranteed. Even our self-love that is super religious, that is what it is guaranteed. And on the third day, He was raised. He is now seated at God's right hand. He promises the Holy Spirit to all who would repent of their sin and believe and follow after Him. His love then being applied to us, His perfect love for God, His perfect love for His neighbor, now being manifest in our hearts so that we can really do that. He gives us the comforter. He gives us the helper so that we can walk in the commands, not perfectly, but salvifically, because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus. That's what we're given. That's what this man is missing. That is what we need. Through Him, we receive the benefit of His perfect love. He is the fulfillment of the law. And you can either be like these religious leaders, standing on the outside, loving yourself, trying to affirm yourself through your religious efforts, or you can humbly fall on your face in desperation and say, I can't do it, and I need Jesus. Therefore, repent of your self-love. And believe in the one who loved God and his neighbor so much that he laid down his life to save sinners just like you and me. Only then can we receive Christ. Only when we receive Christ can we truly love God and others. 1 John 4, 7-12 through 12 says this, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into this world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if, we, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Without Christ, you will never really be able to love God and others. You can have a form of it, but you will not have the real thing. Every relationship that you have will be habitually marred by the sin of self-love. You will enter into and exit out of relationships like business contracts. And you will treat love as a commodity to be bartered and traded for. Unless, of course, you understand that love finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He is the answer. He is what's missing. And if you are satisfied in your love, uh, the love of God in Christ being expressed to you, then you can give it away. It will pour out and over to others. You don't find your satisfaction and identity in that. Only in Jesus Christ. So friends, do you see your love of self? Do you recognize your desperate need of Him? 
that without Him, you cannot know God. And if you cannot know God, you certainly can't love God. And if you cannot know and love God, you certainly can't know and love others. And if you don't know and love others, then you can't love God. can't say that you love God. You see how this works. It's a cycle. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. As we embrace the love of God in Christ, we recognize just how much that cost, just how much He had to pay, and we gladly embrace it. And then we are able to then turn and love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourselves, because we have the love of Christ being manifest to us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit, because love finds its fulfillment in Christ. But you've got to turn away from this love of self and receive the love of Christ. Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, The Gospel-Centered Life, wrote, Loving self is the cruelest of all slaveries. It promises everything and delivers nothing. Loving God and others is the most liberating of all freedoms. It promises everything and gives us more than we could ever imagine. Imagine your life in Christ, being freed from the slavery of self-love so that you can love God and others, so that you can daily commit yourself to act impartially and self-sacrificially for the glory of God and for the good of others, regardless of whether they respond, regardless of whether or not they receive, regardless of whether or not they ever turn and give it back. Friends, that promise is yours in Christ. So don't remain so close to the kingdom of God, but not close enough. Accept its true fulfillment in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have failed. We have failed to love you and others. We have, we have sought our own gain and our own end time and time and time again. And God, we, we realize that, that no matter how much we try to pay the debt with good works and, and try to take our thoughts captive and, and just work to achieve some sense of, of religious piety that we cannot pay for our sin. We cannot love the way you've called us to love. But God, we thank you that despite our sin, you have showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. That his death paid for what we couldn't. He died for our self-love. He rose again so that we might walk in love, loving you and loving our neighbor as Christ has loved. So God, I pray that you would work in our hearts, you would stir our affections, that we would respond with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and follow after Christ. In whose name I pray, amen.